That was the that was the highlight of the movie for me. I'm glad we got to talk about that. I was trying to find the right segue. That was a perfect segue. Oh. Speaking of nut punches. Just splits. <laughs> and then, so apparently well, that was like his signature move in the video game though, right? The nut punch? Yeah. I don't I never played it. Yeah, I yeah. I you looked that you looked that scene up. <laughs> yeah. Johnny Nut Punch Mortal Kombat. <laughs> Special move? <laughs> Johnny's special nut move. Oh my gosh. Yeah, forget the, the tentacles or the ice or anything. <laughs> yeah. The crotch blow. That is. Oh, that is <laughs> I didn't mean it like that's that. A, that's like a. That's a clip we should really kill. It's a Pamela Anderson uh, yeah. movie right there. <laughs> okay. And a Nicole Smith? I don't know. Something like A that. different 90s movie. Different '90s movie that uh, was is not going to be plugged in friendly. The way not it. plugged in friendly. At It'll all. make Mortal Kombat look very plugged in. Friendly. <laughs> all right. What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. I'm Jake. I'm Paul. Welcome back inside our crazy brains. And as usual, it's fitting because we're talking about some crazy making stuff today. Yes, this could be one of the craziest podcasts ever, actually. I mean, not like... Not like insane. Right, no. Just odd, weird, you know, tough to navigate. Exactly. Stuff that makes us feel crazy. Sometimes. Sometimes. Because we teased this on the last episode. There's a lot to talk about, about pop culture and politics. Yeah, we unintentionally teased it. I mean, this really sprang out of just the most least important thing. Yeah, just talking about Taylor Swift and her politics. And it's like, all right, there's a lot here. And don't tell us you don't want to hear about it <laughs> as you turn off the show because I be, I'm oh, so forward. Oh, it takes. <laughs> but, but I'm I, with you, listener. I'm with you. you Trust you, me. I, I don't believe that you don't want to hear about it because these shows like The Connors and these shows like Last Man Standing and these shows like uh, Samantha Bee are, are really – Crushing it these days. Even talk shows. John I mean, Oliver. Yeah, John Oliver, Stephen Colbert. You know all these people. We all talk about how sick we are of politics, and I think it's but really true. We all true. talk about politics, but we all talk about politics, and we keep turning into these things. So, so obviously, it's it's on the radar. And since you know the elections are coming up, and we thought, eh, let's talk a little politics. Yeah, because not, but differently, we're going to talk about the people. We're not talking about politics. We're not going to talk about blue waves. We're not going to be talking about <laughs> make America great again. We're going to be talking about sort of the issues behind them, right? Yeah, the stuff, the way it spills over into pop culture, exactly. In the stories we watch, in the people who make those stories and take part in those stories, we're going to comment on all those things. So we're going to do the fun side. <laughs> yes, as fun as it can be. As fun as it can be. Uh, I'm not going to tell you who I'm voting for or who I voted for. I like to tell people that it's like Schrodinger's cat. Once my vote goes into the ballot, I could have selected any of those options as far as you're concerned. Simultaneously, any one of them or all of them or none of them could have been selected. And you will never know because as soon as you open it, right, then that... Reality, where any reality could be possible, ceases to exist. And there becomes a reality where you only know what happened. So, yeah. Well, 
science, think welcome philosophy. Our, our crazy brains has never been as true as it is this episode. <laughs> the other thing is we're we're coming back to our hurt so good segment because uh, Paul picked out Mortal Kombat with a K for us from 1995 and Netflix uh, movie. It was on Netflix. We tortured ourselves. Oh my! But how goodness. bad did we torture ourselves? Yeah. That's the question. And of course, we'll always uh, at the end do our most least important things. And uh, Paul, without further ado, let's swim a little deeper inside these crazy brainwaves of ours. Hurts so good, Paul. I know you. I know you had your quibbles with my title for this segment. <laughs> seen, it, just, it could go so many different directions, you but, know. You know, seeing as you didn't provide any alternatives, mm. here we are. That's a good point. And not only was it fitting for the segment and the terrible movies we're subjecting ourselves to to see if they're any good, right, because they're right. so bad. Exactly. Uh, it really fits with Mortal Kombat because we're talking about a movie based on a super uber popular fighting game. Exactly. exactly. With lots of hurting. Lots and That lots people of really like. Like to the tune of $5 billion. It's crazy. Paul, let's talk about that for a second. The fact that the Mortal Kombat franchise is one of the highest grossing entertainment media franchises in the world. Yeah. In history. made It's made over five billion with a b dollars that over the last nuts. about 25 years it makes me wish that i had bought stock in mortal kombat actually just it, you saying that yeah like if it was traded on the new york stock exchange which i don't believe it is it's not, it's not but if it was i think we could we could actually probably quit this podcast and just buy respective beach homes somewhere could, in maui and never have to see each other be, <laughs> that's your dream. That is my dream. That's why you're doing this show is to make enough money to get far away from me. Yeah, yeah. I really haven't gotten quite to that point yet, but we're working on it. We're working on it. So the fascinating thing about Mortal Kombat success, among other things, is a list of properties that it's ahead of in terms of global income. Game of Thrones hasn't yet made as much money as Mortal Kombat. The DC Extended Universe. Hasn't made as much money as Mortal Kombat. Friends didn't make as much money as Mortal Kombat. Seinfeld, The Big Bang Theory, Assassin's Creed, My Little Pony, Star, The Hunger Games. Sorry, not Star Wars. <laughs> Star Wars. Star Games, The Hunger Games, Mission Impossible. All of those things have made less money than Mortal Kombat. You know, it is really amazing. And when this movie was first released... It actually made quite a bit of money, too. I mean, it, it was, was number it was one at the box office for, for three, three weeks straight. Three weeks, yeah. This is a 1995 movie um, that was made sort of on the tail end of, like, the worst era for video game movies ever. Just a bad era for, I feel like, video game movies, superhero movies, any, like, fantasy-type movies yeah. Yeah. really well, struggled in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, yeah. This was, from what I remember... and. It, Correct me if I'm wrong, Jake, because I know you were there and you remember all these things. I, but I was there for the 90s. <laughs> but <laughs> very small there. But okay, so yeah, so in, in the early 1990s, you had movies like Super Mario Brothers, which is actually considered to be the worst, one of the very, very worst video game movies ever. Right. You had Street Fighter. You had you know a couple of other ones that that really. 
set the bar incredibly low for video game movies. And I think it's because Hollywood really didn't quite know what to do with them. Um, they had no idea what this video game thing was. They knew they were popular, so they thought, oh, let's make these movies about them. And they had no idea what to do. Right. And well, the, the the visual effects weren't quite there to keep up yeah, with the fantastical 90s. things that were happening in video games. And even though the video game graphics themselves weren't incredible yet, right. they were forgiven because they had come so far from a little black and white dots and lines on the screen. Exactly. And so it, that difference didn't feel jarring the way it felt with bad CG in a movie. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Along comes Mortal Kombat, which was supposed to be the guy who actually brought it to the screen said this is going to be the biggest franchise since Star Wars. He was all in on Mortal Kombat. And so he brought it to the screen. He, um, the guy who directed it. Do you remember who directed it? I can't Paul remember. W. S. Anderson. Oh, you're so good. He didn't know anything about video games, but he actually went to the fans and really listened to them. And after he made his first cut of the movie, he listened to the fans what they wanted, and they said more fights, more fight scenes, more fights. And so, so he gave them more fights. <laughs> the movie is almost just one long extended fight scene, which. Is a problem because the choreography is not great. <laughs> I mean, I know this is 20 plus years ago now. And yeah. so we choreography has really progressed since then. And because we've gotten so much better at faking how we bludgeon one another. But the choreography felt really slow and methodical. And like everybody was, it felt like when you'd watch WWE or WWF. Kind of, didn't they're it? They're telegraphing their moves so the next person can make it look like they got hit, and you know they're 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 guarding, and oh my goodness, it's it moves yeah. so slow. Yeah. But yet at the time, because we have to take that into account, people love like that. It didn't feel as jarringly right, right uh, off as maybe it does to us. Over 20 years later. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Just to set this movie up a little bit, Mortal Kombat's obviously this this long-standing fighting franchise. Like you just yeah, it come out three years previously in '92. Yeah, it's it's it was sort of like one of the the it was Rock'em Sock'em Robots only with a lot more blood and in, in a virtual world. You know, it just had these figures. You they you had these characters that you played and and essentially you just fought one another. Um, Mortal Kombat takes it really actually takes the the quote unquote theme of the video games and just brings it to screen almost undiluted. Right, it's very little difference right. from the plot that's in the game, which right. is pretty minimal. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? That they just sort of they, it was weird that, that it was so strangely accurate. Yeah, to the I, video like, game. I obviously, well, not obviously for those of you that don't know me, but. At that time in history, in the mid-90s, this was not the type of game I was allowed to play. (laughs) If I was ever allowed... We didn't own a video game system at this time, but even if we had, there was no way my parents would have let me have a game where spines were being ripped out. Well, and wise parents you have. Yeah. And uh, so I didn't know a lot about Mortal Kombat. It wasn't one that I came back to. And so going back to read up on the game versus the movie... They barely changed anything. They barely changed anything. The only thing they changed was to bring a little bit of the second game into the first movie. Yeah. Just to give you context for the sequel they wanted to do. Right, exactly. And so so 
that's both good, I guess, for fans of the of the video game who really really love the video if game. If you that love slavish, thing. right, reproductions, but as a movie, it makes the whole thing. Oh my goodness! Just that much dumber yeah you know because essentially you have these these fighters who are all gathered on one island who are tasked with fighting these bad fighters for the fate of the world okay. literally the fate of the world if they lose the fight how what how they determined that this was going to determine the fate of the world i don't know well yeah sense. the fact that it's like oh well in order for the wicked evil emperor <laughs> who wants to take over <laughs> yeah. the earth to be able to enter the realm of earth he must have 10 consecutive victories <laughs> yeah. in mortal combat which takes place about every 30 years so we're we're on about almost year 300 now and uh we've won 9 in a row so that's good but now we need you plucky kids to <laughs> exactly. to stop us from, you know, allowing him in. Exactly. Exactly. And yet, spoiler alert for those of you that, you know, haven't seen this gripping, thrilling plot. <laughs> they win. And he still manages to enter the realm of Earth. What was that and attack about? by the end. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the, the rules here, they make very clear up front. Right. Right? And... You see this the standoff between these two sorcerers, these, and you must obey the rules of mortal combat. And he's like, "Yes, you're right. I must." <laughs> the evil guy is like, "You're yeah. right. I'm, I got to obey." Sorry, the rules. my bad. But they Won't throw all of them out by the end. Yeah, it's it's a ludicrous movie. It is ludicrous. You're not coming to this for for its. You know, for its adherence to reality. I know this is this is complete and utter fantasy. But in terms of in terms of what a bad what I think a bad movie should be, this bad movie was pretty good. It had it had a lot of the hallmarks that you wanted in it. Right. The acting, the the terrible the writing, terrible acting, the terrible writing. The uh, my favorite character. Yes. All right, we got to go yeah. into. So this was made in the early 19... Or the mid-1990s. Mid-90s. So we, we got to give it a little bit of props for that. But the character of Goro. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So, so the animatronics were terrible. Oh. Star Wars had already happened, what, 15 years? Yeah. Tw- almost 20 years prior to this? Yeah. And it had better animatronics. Oh, much better. Much better. So Goro in, in the game and in the movie is this four... Armed for armed general, right? Prince or general? Prince he's a or prince, general? Whatever. He's, both. Yeah, but he can be both. <laughs> and he really can be both because he's got he's got the muscle. He's, he's literally huge. yeah. He is a. He's large... like Dwayne Johnson with two extra arms. <laughs> That's really a fitting description. And and he's but he's not nearly as nice as Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne Johnson seems like a really good guy. Yeah. So if you're and listening, he can articulate. Dwayne, feel free to come on the podcast. Anytime. Yeah, let's we, talk. Yeah, we don't think you're like Goro. We don't think you're like Goro. No matter what those other people say. But Goro, he is a terrible, terrible non-human being. I mean, he is just a nasty guy. Yeah, all he does is roar and kill well, people. And that's the thing. So in the movie. His dialogue pretty much consists, and he can talk. I mean, he has some dialogue. He does have a few lines. He speaks with another bad guy for a while, and they talk about how evil they each are. But for the most part, he gets into the ring, and he just goes... And flails his fists 
yeah, sky. his arms raised at the same time. It looks like <laughs> it's like they're connected by wires, which they may be, where the the arms raise and they sort of move. Right. And well, it was it, it was an animatronic. Right. Right. No CGI. Yeah. It, it took them like <laughs> a dozen, twelve to sixteen people to run this animatronic. And it was so finicky that it would die on them. Like, they couldn't take it outside. They had to shoot all those scenes yeah. on a sound stage, And even then, it kept going kaput on them because it was such an elaborate yeah. animatronic. And, it ends and if up it didn't move, so it looked garbage. pretty cool. You know? If it never moved, it would have been fine. Yeah, the muscle tone looked pretty good. But as soon as it started moving... Or no. trying to talk. Yeah. No, I think I could have taken on Goro, honestly. Right. He's and so I am not slow a and... Oh, but you know what, Paul? This was the '90s. It was a different time. People just moved slower <laughs> yeah. in the '90s. <laughs> they did. <laughs> yes, they moved slower. Uh, but and it, and it <laughs> it's just there's so many things we take for granted now, like the way people get into roles and they bulk up or they slim down and they right. like. And so it's funny for this movie. Um, I will give it props. The game, I think one of the other things about the Mortal Kombat game was kind of the way it dressed its female characters very scantily and right. let, used them as eye candy. Right. They, they, although they didn't, like, put them in nun habits here, <laughs> no. they actually dressed them up. They didn't leave them all scantily clad and just ogle them with the camera. But at the same time, they weren't particularly like athletic. Like they no. looked, the gal that plays the main uh, Sonia Blade, yeah, Sonia Blade. She's she's fine. She's f- like relatively fit. Looks like she could probably run a mile, right? But she's got these spindly legs and spindly arms, and we're supposed to believe that she can, you know, kick guys. 5, 10, 15 feet backwards and choke out a huge monster of a man with her tiny little bird butt. <laughs> yeah. Her tiny little bird calves. Not just... Yeah, that's exactly right. Her calves, not her thighs. It was her calves. It was I'm her sure calves. it was done, you know, because you don't want it to look too risque or anything, but yeah, that scene did look a little bit awkward. You're just like, you, you see this guy trying... I felt bad for this actor. He's trying so hard to look like he can't get out of this hold. <laughs> Well, and it looks like the flimsiest hold you've ever seen in your whole life. I know. It really does. And and sort of the interesting thing that they did with Sonya Blade's character, and I think this shows how far culture has come, really, where even though she's she can beat up people and she's strong and she's tough and all this kind of stuff, they still turned her into this damsel in distress at the end. They, right. They kidnapped her and took her away so that the guys could come and rescue her and so that the main hero with a really fantastic mullet-type haircut was able to, to deal with the main bad guy because, you know, Sonya Blade just wasn't quite up to the task, apparently. Yeah, they talk about how she's one of the most competent fighters in the world. She doesn't anybody to help her, and she takes out this one of the guys who's a king on earth, as they talk about, who has amassed wealth through violence, and she takes him out like nothing. And yet, by the end, she's completely helpless right, and does right. nothing. Yeah, it really reverts to sort of that standard video game trope, yeah. like Princess Peach. 
Yep. You know, she becomes this this incredible athlete to Princess Peach. And <laughs> they're like, we don't know what to do with a female character, so we're just gonna, um, uh, yeah, she sucks at fighting all of a sudden. All of a sudden, and she's chained up. My friends will save me. Yeah, he just drags her away by her hair. It's like, she has not taken that from anyone this whole time. And then she's like, oh, help, no, I can't do anything. <laughs> she's like, it, it was so jarring. It was so jarring. Yeah. Yeah. So so many plot holes, so many plot jumps. Yeah, and again, this movie wasn't a, it wasn't made to be a good movie. Right, I think it's I made read, to be an action. Yeah, I I, I read something to the movie. effect that that we now expect video game movies to be relatively good and cohesive. Hitting my mic, and this uh, this movie does not labor under any of those illusions. It doesn't think it needs to be good. Doesn't need doesn't need to be cohesive. It just needs to have a lot of fight scenes, a lot of 1990s music, techno beat music. Um, and and that's what it was. And and in what it was trying to be, I guess you could say it sort of succeeded. Well, I guess here's here's my thing with that because I actually have a soft spot for kung fu movies. I've gone through a, a kung fu phase in my life where that was almost all I watched was old kung fu movies. Seventies, eighties, nineties, two thousands. I was just I was sampling the best of the decades when it came to kung fu, and there are more competent kung fu movies that were made twenty years before this one. Or that came out even in the same decade as no. this one. Like Rush Hour only came out three years after. Oh, yeah. And the kung fu in that is way more watchable than yeah. it is in this. Or you think back to uh, Drunken Master, Jackie Chan's late 70s classic. I think that was 78. And the kung fu is fun to watch. It's fascinating. It's fun. And and it feels good. It's fast-paced. Yeah. This felt so slow yeah. for being a kung fu movie. It's like, at least do that well. Yeah, you know, it, it was it was definitely... I would, I would disagree. I don't think it is a kung fu movie because you're right. I mean, when you look at that and you compare it to, to any of the most, those movies or the old Bruce Lee movies or Rumble in the Bronx, which in real kung fu... The uh, the choreography is amazing. This one was not so much a kung fu movie as a video game movie that had a little bit of kung fu in it, or uh, tried to have a lot of kung fu in it. Yeah, yeah. So you had <laughs> that's true because it was a nonstop fighting. Scene. That's that, and I, yeah, that's what I mean. It's like if you're going to be a fighting movie, be a good fighting movie at least. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's fascinating to me that it made as much money as it did because I don't feel like that was that good even for the time. And they got rid of the defining thing of the genre, which was its gory fatalities. It was PG thirteen. That they, was the the video game would have been R, you know, right? If it had the, been translated straight in there. The game itself spawned the ESRB rating system, helped pave the way because people there were lawsuits over yeah. how gory this game was, with spines being ripped out and skeletons and skulls and yeah. the fatalities were gory and gruesome. They stripped those from the movie. That's why it's fascinating to me that this movie did as well as it did in its first run is I imagine if I had been into this game back then right. and I went to see this and that was gone, I'd be like, why am I not just watching Street Fighter? Because really... Mortal Kombat obviously has different controls than Street Fighter, but it's a 2D fighting game. Right. Similar to Street Fighter, and it differentiated itself by its kind of supernatural elements, right? With these sorcerers and these 
creepy, you know, scorpions yeah. and sub-zeros yeah. and their elemental attacks and these gory fatalities. That was the thing. That was what generated so much of his yeah. attention. And they got rid of it. Yeah. Like, even the fatalities that were here were really bland. They were kind of bland. I, I agree. The, the goriest scene in the whole thing was, I think, Scorpion and his little thing that comes out of his hand. He has right. this this tentacle thing that comes out of his hand, and it sort of peels away the skin. That was that was as gory as it really got. Or when, or when he got sliced by that shield and fire spurted. Oh, yeah, this fire spurting fire thing, spurting. which didn't make any sense at all. Yeah, why is there fire spurting from this yeah, guy? Yeah, th- that whole sequence actually didn't make any sense at all because, you know, they're sort of they're sort of in, like, this whole Street Fighter thing. They have this ring and people are fighting. Right, when Mortal Kombat of, starts. And then all of a sudden one of the main people is just walking Strolling in the forest. The yeah, just walking through the forest, and all of a sudden he's attacked. Yeah. No, no context whatsoever. But then they fight a lot in this forest, and then... And they somehow vanish into this like fiery place skeletal, filled with skeletal shit. Plat- yeah. platforms, awesome, and lots of bones, and lots, lots of, bones. of bones. Yeah, I, really plasticky like sounding bones. Well, you know, nineteen nineties. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the excuse for everything. Nineteen nineties. Yeah, though that scene was one of the ones that was tacked on, and it feels tacked on. Yeah, I mean, it feels like they just essentially. Had this building. It was like a Lego thing. They they had this building. They took out a few bricks, threw in a bunch more, didn't care how it looked, and so it all sort right. of leans over to the side. Yeah. It's an awkward thing. It's a it's a very awkward thing. So, Paul, on the Hurt So Good scale, uh, I'll remind everyone that the Hurt So Good scale uh, can be everything from a positive 10, your uh, the best movies of all time. Right. To... If we put Schindler's List in this category that would Paul be would tack it 10. up at a positive 10 all the way down to a negative 10 your troll 2 um, type movies that are just so fantastically bad that they might be some of the best comedies ever made see already I can tell that this is going to be wildly inconsistent because I forget what I ranked Sunday School Musical so Sunday School Musical second you, movie in yeah already. we're two movies in but Sunday School Musical I believe you gave a two negative two sorry negative two a negative two on the Hurts So Good scale oh okay so where would you put 1995's Mortal Kombat on the Hurts So Good Scale. Okay, on the Hurt So Good scale, I would actually give Mortal Kombat a negative six. Ooh, all right. Not because it's a worse movie than Sunday School Musical, because Sunday School Musical is objectively a terrible, terrible right. movie. And, and Mortal Kombat is not, it's just bad, but it's a fun bad, and thus it it gets a little bit lower on the scale then. Right. You know, Troll 2 would be... Hurts a little bit better. Yeah, exactly. It does hurt a little bit better. Did you... Did you watch this? I asked this question last time. Did you watch this one alone or with people? I watched it with my wife. Ah. So we we did you get it? So you made fun of it back and forth together. We did make fun of it back to back and forth together. It was it was nice. We were both a little tired at the time, so we weren't on top of our game. But wasn't your best riff track? It wasn't my best riff track, but but I did enjoy the movie just because of of you know yeah it's cheesiness so so tell me about your rating yeah so for me um i would agree the the thing that sets it apart from sunday school musical is the fact that this was a big budget movie comparative to the eight thousand dollars that was spent (laughs) on sunday school musical this had actors and actresses who had followings christopher lambert 
Although he's yeah. a terrible actor. He's and a he terrible was actor. awful in this movie. He yeah. might have been the worst actor in this movie, even though he was the highest paid. Um, he's in this. Bridget uh, Wilson. Um, she was kind of in the height of her mm-hmm. popularity as an it girl. You know, she was fresh off of things like Billy Madison. <laughs> you know, <laughs> high point of her career. Yeah, real big stuff. Um, but was a known entity, and, right? And drew a crowd and all that kind of stuff. And Robin Shu was a competent martial artist, kung fu actor. And so, anyways, these are relatively serious actors in a relatively you know, unserious, serious, unserious yeah. movie, weirdly. Yeah. It, that, and it was uneven in that regard. So all of those things coming together, you know what? I wanted the Kung Fu to be even worse than it was. I have to say for me, the Kung Fu wasn't bad enough to be funny. And what it wasn't about good Goro, enough though? to be interesting. Goro was real. No, no, I'm not, I'm not taking anything of what Goro was awful. Christopher Lambert <laughs> was awful. The plot and the pacing, you know, just... It's all bad. There's, there's. I'm hard pressed to think of anything good in this. <laughs> but does where like? But that's what I mean. Is where is the hurt so good for me? Yeah. Where like where did uh, for me? I'm gonna say this is about middle of the road, and I'm gonna give it a negative five. Wow, that's interesting. Because it is funny. There is plenty to laugh at, but at the same time, it's not quite so glaringly incompetent as to be extra funny and you almost are a little bit more disappointed than you are <laughs> amused at times because you're like you know you, you you're not so bad that i can laugh but you're not nearly good enough that i can enjoy this so yeah. i'm kind of stuck in this middle ground of eh but then Goro and the acting and the bad animatronics and CGI and all that stuff is delightful. Yeah. So I'm yeah. going to give it a negative five on my Heard So Good scale. I think that that's fair. I think um, I, I'm almost tempted. There's, If you haven't watched Mortal Kombat and you want to kind of get a sense of, of the height of its badness, there is a clip on YouTube called Goro vs. Johnny. Oh, my gosh. Check that out. That was there the is at least fight. one swear word in there, and we don't necessarily, you know, we just want to warn you about that if you're very sensitive to that sort yeah. of stuff. But it, if you watch it, you will have pretty much Mortal Kombat in That's a nutshell. All That's all you need to know. All you need to know is that none of it makes sense. And so don't, like, the fact that he punches Goro in the nuts and runs away. <laughs> That's, <laughs> and it's funnier than I even described it. It is the weirdest little... It is the weirdest... I'm going to hit you in the nets and I'm going to run away. <laughs> and it really has Goro at his, at his yelling best because he comes out... Rawr! And then the blow happens and it's... It's hilarious. I, and all the build-up to that scene. They, get, they, they have the these serious beach scene between... <laughs> between Johnny and Sonia, and it's like I'm gonna I'm gonna put myself on the line for the team. I'm gonna like like I have to. It's so he's so dangerous. I've got a plan. It's gonna be okay. <laughs> His brilliant plan that he, and then he makes this terrible bet with the evil sorcerer. He's like, okay, yeah. If I like yeah. no, the evil sorcerer is like, yeah, you can fight Goro, but whoever wins, I get to pick whoever I want to fight and fight them wherever I want. For the fate of the world. <laughs> yeah. And Johnny's like, okay, I got a plan. 
and then he gets into this fight, and his plan is <laughs> nut punch and flee. <laughs> and run. Run as fast as you can. Which, it's granted, <laughs> that can be a great strategy in a mugging situation. <laughs> right. But maybe not in a martial arts video maybe game. Maybe not in a Mortal right. Kombat, the fate of the world is yeah. resting on this fight, and you're like, nut punch, <laughs> and I'm out. Yeah, it was sort of the bad movie equivalent of Indiana Jones shooting the swordsman, right? Except much, much worse. Oh, was, yeah. If, if So uh, if the movie was more consistently like that particular <laughs> sequence, this might have moved up to like a negative seven for me. Yeah. There was just – because it got so ridiculous yeah. here. But then it – it didn't quite maintain that throughout. So there you go. Yeah, go Johnny versus Goro. Johnny versus Goro. It's it's worth the the couple minutes <laughs> that it'll take from your day. Uh, speaking of nut punches, it's time to talk about politics. <laughs> Thank you for not turning off the show. Uh, I mean, I'm just grateful that you're here to talk about politics with us. Talk about politics. Pop culture and politics. We all love it, so. It's one of my favorite peas. <laughs> no, as we head toward election time, I am thinking how little I like politics right now. Yeah. Well, it, the the really sad thing is that our politics more and more, at least in the semantics, resemble Mortal Kombat. Well, that's really people true. people talking about body slams and harassing people and sweeping the leg and no, it, it, incivility. It's like, is this a video game version? That was almost a brilliant segue. Almost. Yeah, because... Where because, did I lose it? No. <laughs> Can I get some coaching on my segues? <laughs> no, that was that was definitely an 8.5, I would say, right, on the segue right. scale. I think, uh, I think it was... Because you're absolutely right. I mean, you have this level of combativeness, literally combativeness, that that has lowered the discourse. I think in this country, you know, yeah. it's it's just it's just so hostile, and you, it does feel like Mortal Kombat, where one side doesn't feel really complete unless they rip the spine out of the other side, and that's that's probably not the way politics should should work. Yeah. And and of course, because we live in such a fragmented very angry time all of that has sort of seeped into the entertainment world in a way that we i don't recall ever seeing quite this level of of political slash social engagement in the realm of media and entertainment well let's dive right into that um what would you say are some of the biggest changes that you've observed in the way pop culture delves into politics yeah you know i think that that in years gone by and as you know, I have a lot of years under my belt to speak from. Uh, uh, quite a few have gone by for you. Quite a few have gone by. Um, it's Quite one... a few fewer for me. <laughs> yes, rub it in, Jake. Why don't you rub it in a little bit more? Um, it's one of those things where I think that, that entertainment used to be a place where you could sort of get away from the real world. You know, there was there was a certain escapism. There was a certain um, feeling of, like, if you turned on the TV... You could t- exhale and take a deep breath and say, okay, so the worries of the day are behind me. I'm going to watch a little Matlock or whatever. And I think that that obviously some political issues have always been a part of certain TV shows and, and more prominent in certain TV eras. And even movies. And even movies. If you it, think back to Birth of a Nation. Right. One of the first you know, colossal oh, films. Goodness. Yeah. Incredibly 
political message in that movie. Right. And and if you talk about if you talk to to film historians, they'll say that even some of the movies that didn't look like they had anything to do with anything definitely had echoes of the political angst of the time, you know? So it entertainment has always been political in a sense, but I think that many people used it as an escape. And I don't think it's hard to find that escape now. I'm as I'm reviewing television for my other gig, I think that, that I've seen more political messages brought into the realm of these TV shows. And I think movies, especially as we come into Oscar season where we're talking about awards bait movies and all that kind of stuff, it's really not enough, I don't think, to grab the attention of somebody of an Oscar voter or whatnot to be a really finely well-crafted movie. You have to deal with issues. You have to deal with with weighty things that we're all dealing with. Um, not all of them get overtly political, but all of them have sort of this political subtext. And so I think that you see more and more of that now. Yeah, I think that's an important differentiation too. Politics versus political subtext. Right. These things that may touch on issues that have politics attached to them versus movies that are blatantly political. And I think that's part of why our discourse in this regard can get so confusing is because, yes, to a degree, words are just words. But at the same time, words are important. And so when we we throw politics around, it starts to become meaningless. And I think a lot of the movies we see aren't necessarily political. Right. A lot of the TV shows aren't necessarily political, but they are more willing to tackle issues that we in the real world have highly politicized. And so by them being willing to tackle these issues, they are by intent or just by accident – because I think both happens. Right, absolutely. They become political or they become perceived as political. Yeah. Even if they weren't trying to truly be political and they're just trying to make a statement about an issue. Yeah, yeah. Because is it is it being political to say that women should feel safe around men and should feel safe to to talk about and report when they've been, you know, harmed? By another, by a man, right, right. That's not actually a political issue, except that the issue itself has has become politicized. That's absolutely right, and I think I think that that's you're exactly right with that. I can think of two examples that I'll just throw out for for what they're worth. I saw a movie last night called Green Book. Mm, yeah, which, you, you mentioned this on the yeah, it's on my the it's, fantasy. Yeah, it's, it's on, on my fantasy movie list. team. Yeah. So um, I'm rooting for this one, and <laughs> it is gonna. Yeah, Jake, you don't have a chance. But <laughs> but Green Green Book is about this this Italian chauffeur who is hired to take this this black musician through the through the deep south in the in the early 1960s. And so it sort of talks about both of their different worlds, and it talks. It has obviously has a ton to do with the racism of the day, how different different cultures perceive each other. There's a ton of social issues that belong in this. It only has one real political reference at all. It talks. The the musician at one point says that that Jack and Bobby Kennedy are trying to change the world as we know it, and that's the only political reference we get. But because these these issues can be are so important in society today, I, th- I think you can see how they could be politicized. 
swinging over to the other side, you have a movie like First Man, which mm. which documents another movie that takes place in the 1960s. It talks about Neil Armstrong and his mission to the moon. It is not political at all, and yet the movie, because of, of some misleading information that, that certain politicians got about the context of the movie, where, where a flag was or was not planted on the surface of the moon, whether the fact that they didn't film that and, and pay greater attention to that, does that make it anti-American? Right. You know, it, it became this political touchstone, in a sense, where it became well, that the movie the itself. Exactly. It was not the point. And if you watch the movie, I won't spoil it, but there was a lot more going on on the moon <laughs> than planting the flag in this movie. Right. And um, the flag still shows up. And the flag still shows up. It was really, it was really a big bunch about nothing. Nothing at all. Um, but because of because we feel so so angsty and angry about everything, just that just the the hint of of something un American taking place in, in one of these movies all of a sudden became this hot button political issue. And I think that might be part of the problem and why everything feels so much more political is just because we as viewers now have the ability to pile on right. our opinions and connect them with other people who have similar opinions in ways that we didn't have right. years ago. So when Mr. Rogers, for example, has an African-American police officer on his show during a time of great racial tension in our country, and he decides to not only have him on his show, but sit him down and wash his feet and share the same swimming pool as him. That was a simple moment. That's a simple human moment, right? But because of the context with which, with, within which it happened, an incredibly powerful statement on an issue that was very politicized. Right. And, and rightly so. Like, he was making a very powerful and right statement. He was making a purposeful move in that direction. Yeah. It wasn't an accident. He was saying... He was he was talking about the equality of man, and he was making a statement. It, but you're right, Jake. It's really interesting to Twitter wasn't there to pile on it. Exactly. When you bring in this social media component, all of a sudden it changes the dynamic for everything. You know, and, and it's interesting. We we got this this whole conversation sort of sprang out of out of you talking about Taylor Swift supporting right. a Democratic candidate, and. When you looked at that issue, I think that 20 years ago, not an issue at all, right? I mean, because you just wouldn't have had the this this arena, this Mortal Kombat arena of social media where people take sides and they jump into the fray and they start tearing people down for, for lots of different things. And, right. and, and social media really just just accelerates this whole process, I think. Right. It would take a lot more time and energy and specific energy, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago to bring this much attention to a celebrity making a political statement. Right. Whether it's Mr. Rogers, whether it's Taylor Swift, whether it's Ronald Reagan, you know, it took a lot of focused media attention right. to generate, you know, any anger at one in 
like at a particular yeah. I think so, I think what Jane Fonda probably yeah she yeah. you know she's a notorious she's, example right of and there that. are people I know who still won't watch Jane Fonda movies to this day because yeah. of that but that was that was an exce- like the there was just not enough attention and time in the media to cover there were probably other celebrities yeah. I would wager who were talking about politics and supporting candidates and throwing their hat in the ring for this person and that person. Yeah, they're 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 citizens. I mean, they have yeah. a right to speak out and and talk about the issues that are important to them. So, but what would you say then is and that you've seen like an effective way to do that for a celebrity or an ineffective way? Yeah, you know, it's it's a really good question and it's something that I've sort of wrestled with. As I have engaged with with conversations, political or social conversations with with people in my own sphere, and sometimes the fun and frustration that can can be spurred on by those conversations, it I am constantly reminded of how um, difficult it is to change somebody's mind on something. You know, this is not political, but just our conversations on two thousand one are a great example of that yeah. because I am clearly in the right. I have all <laughs> the backing that two thousand one is a great movie, and yet you still insist on denying that that basic reality. And and so I think that when we come come to these political conversations, we all feel like we're absolutely right, right? Right. And oftentimes the people who we talk with they feel like they are absolutely right. I mean, talking with somebody about climate change, it can be one of the most frustrating experiences ever because there's just there's just this impasse as to what where the where the playing field even is. And so when I look at um, celebrities as they engage with these issues, they have absolutely every right to talk about the issues and the candidates that resonate with them, right? I don't know how much good it really does. I honestly don't. I know that that it probably does impact some, um, but I think more than anything, I think it just sort of, in this age that we live in, I think more than anything, it just sort of cements where we all are. Yeah. The more someone speaks to something we agree with, the more we like them, the more we support them, the more, um, the, the stronger we feel in our positions. If we disagree with them, that gives us all the more reason to push back and push back harder. Because when we feel, when there's something really important to us, our instinct is always to defend. It's not to listen. It's always to defend. And I think that that becomes, it just becomes a difficult thing. Yeah. So that's where for me, I think the, the how is as important as the why behind it. You may, like, no matter how important you think your belief is, the how you communicate that is crucial to whether or not you're ever going to have a long-term change. Right. I, I am... I'm a hair, I'm a hair away, hair's breath away from being convinced that you're never going to change someone's mind in this one conversation, right? In the immediate, in the short term, right? Definitely not on Twitter, right? Definitely not on unless Twitter. unless you're talking to somebody back and forth for a long time, right? Um, and so it's it's a long game. I like there's a um, 
there's, we talk about this term with the recently departed Eugene Peterson. He was a pastor, author, and this phrase, a long obedience in the same direction. I think there's a lot of truth to that in the way our hearts are changed, that they're changed over a lot of interaction, a lot of engagement in the same direction over a long period of time. Yeah. And we have to build trust before people will ever listen to what we have to say. And that's why I think stories are so much better in the long run at changing hearts and minds than a celebrity who has a platform just making a stand. Totally agree. Um, you know, and I think of I think of you know, just the way our mind our culturally, what regardless of what side of this particular conversation you're on, you look at how the culture conversation on homosexuality and gay marriage has changed over the last 20, 30 years. And it was not, although we have political changes now over the last five years, that change was really started and seeded and nurtured by pop culture. Right. Right. By things like story. um, Why am I will and grace and um, the musical TV show? Why am I forgetting the name of the musical TV show? Glee. Glee, you know, and others, Ellen DeGeneres and, you know, her work in comedy and in the entertainment realm and other people, I'm sure. But just telling stories where these characters lived lives alongside their friends. Yep. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, when when we look at the issues that are really important to us, I think facts and figures and all that are really great. But I think that that for us to be emotionally moved to change or to to back a certain thing or something, um, it requires story. It requires it requires relationship. And I think stories are inherently about relationship. They bring us into somebody else's life. And helps us to see things like they see things. And because of that, I think that entertainment and pop culture has, can be, and often in positive, really, really positive ways, can be a huge catalyst for, for change. Or at least for mutual understanding. I mean, I think that you can, you can disagree with gay marriage and still look at some of these stories and, and acknowledge the, that these are these are people who have real emotions, live real lives, and, and have real value. And I think that, that sometimes when we distance ourselves from the people involved with these, these issues, we lose a little bit of our own humanity in the process, you know? Right. Um, let me ask you this, Jake. Can you think of a movie or a television show that has moved you in a way that you weren't expecting, that it changed your mind or brought attention to an issue that you had never really thought of before. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, the, like the example that pops into my head first um, is not even the best example of it, but I'll, I'll give it anyways because it's the one that sticks out to me in my own experience, and that was Elysium Interesting. Uh, with Matt Damon. And my dad and I, my dad had, I don't even remember why it got on his radar, except that my dad loves sci-fi. Love you, dad. Um, He has loved sci-fi ever since I can remember. And so he reads sci-fi, he watches sci-fi TV shows, watches sci-fi movies, loves it. So he had seen Elysium. I think he had been on like a business trip, had a night to kill, went and saw Elysium in theaters. And he came back and he's like, 
Jake, we got to go see this movie. And so one night, um, got the kids in bed and we went down to the little local dollar theater <laughs> by this point because we're old, you know, we're both older, you know, he's older than me, obviously, but we're both old and we just go to dollar theaters these days. So <laughs> we go to the dollar theater to watch Elysium and I think I'm going to watch a sci-fi movie. And then as you watch this movie and as I talked with my dad afterwards, I was thinking about immigration and refugees in a whole new way, in a way that I wasn't, I didn't, I just, frankly, before, I just didn't really engage or think about the topic. Like it just wasn't, it wasn't pressing. I was in school, you know, I had a family, I was working full time, I had little kids. Like this was an issue that I I just wasn't thinking about. I was just trying to survive, you know, get my essays done, pass my tests, like make enough money to feed my kids. But watching this movie contextualized the plight of a mother and a daughter who need, who are desperately fighting for survival, and a mother who cares so deeply for her daughter, she's willing to do anything it'll take to get her the medical attention she needs. And it's wrapped up in this sci-fi, you know, story with Matt Damon um, and Neil Blomkamp, and I like Neil Blomkamp. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh yeah, these are. It, it's it. You feel ashamed almost right, that it right, took right. you that long. Yeah, no, it I took totally a movie that. like that to yeah. make you feel that compassion. Mm-hmm. But you're like, these are these these stories are nuanced. Not everyone is an evil actor, you know, and not and and not only that, but these people deserve attention, even if the solution is complex. Right. Even if it's hard to figure out what's the right thing to do, we can. We should all be able to admit that there's a human there. So right. that that right. for me is one that stands out starkly in my mind. As I from that day on, I could not think about these issues the same way because yeah. of that movie. Yeah, it's it's interesting how deeply they, these stories can impact you because yeah. they really do. For me, I think the the movie that pops into my mind is the Florida Project, mm. which was a, a really small, tiny movie that was released last year. But it talks about this mom and a daughter living on the edge of, of, of the Magic Kingdom down in Orlando. And for me, just, just that it was a really whimsical, wonderful, funny, sometimes tragic story that brought you into the lives of this, this mom and her daughter. And the mom, frankly, is not all that all that likable, but you can see her love for her daughter. And the daughter is just incredibly charming. And I don't think I had ever really processed the idea of this sort of this sort of poverty that we see there. You know, these these people who live in this hotel that really are making it just day by day and every single month finding the the ability to stay where they live is this monumental struggle. Um, it's the sort of struggle that I've never been personally familiar with. Uh, and, and because of that, like you, I think that it's so easy to let it sort of slide under your, your personal radar. The movie forced you to look at the people. And because it forced you to look at the people and get to know them and be dragged into their world, it forced you into the issue. And I think that that's where story can be a really powerful thing. Yep. So what about for you guys? What was a story, whether it was a TV show, a movie, a book, a song even, 
that made you rethink something or think about something for the first time, uh, really, as in our case, uh, we'd be fascinated to hear that. Hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. I'd love to talk about it because I, you know, personally, I'm, I struggle with this, but I'm trying to engage more with those types of stories to be willing to, to give them attention in both fictional and yeah. real settings, whether it's documentary stuff like that. And they can be hard to want to engage with. They, they can know? be when you just want to disconnect and unplug. But We want to escape. Like we said at the very top right. of this segment, you know, we want to escape in yeah. some ways. But I, I, you know, I'm trying to, in my own life, be more intentional about the stories that I'm pushing into if I'm going to spend time doing that. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear what has been impacting you and uh, be impacted as well. So, uh, but now it's time for the most least important thing. Here we are in the most least important thing. The way we love to wrap up every single little show of ours. Love it. We bring whatever we want, and we tell you why it should be a big deal or why it shouldn't. And, Paul, you're up first this time. I'm up first. What's your most least important thing? Well, this is going to be a great little addition to our conversation because, uh, because um, as you might know, I've been watching a lot of documentaries this year, and I just saw another one that I think is really fascinating. Um, when we talk about the issues that we really care about, one of the issues that, that has always sort of impacted me is the environment. You know, mm. I'm, kind of, I'm kind of a environmentalist, which I think in, in the world that we live in, sort of this, this uh, you know, conservative evangelical America conservatism yeah. evangelicalism they that, struggle with the whole climate issue yeah yeah and, and that makes me a little bit of an odd duck saw a documentary called behold the earth mm. fascinating little documentary it talks to um it, it's it's a pretty spiritual doc which is sort of odd because the director actually doesn't say that he's religious at all. I had a chance to, to talk with the director, David Conover, and, and he would classify himself as more of a secular humanist. But, but the film itself really takes, takes a big bent on faith, and he talks to a bunch of really famous scientists who have sort of a Christian background or who are Christians and who believe it's a big issue. He talks with, with younger evangelicals who also believe it's a big issue. And it's a fascinating little... It's almost a an argument on why evangelicals should care about the environment. Mm. And it's often done in a way that I think would resonate with, with kind of folks like me. You know, it, it talks about there's one person who brings forth the idea that caring for the environment is really a very pro-life thing, right. you know? Hugely. It's, it, it, exactly. It's not just about protecting the unborn, but protecting, but the protecting the environment does that for the unborn as well. Right. But it, it's about caring for people, helping ensure that they're they're safe and healthy and protected throughout their entire lives because some of the things that, that you know, the environment just impacts so many different things, and so it becomes a big pro life conversation and and. I found it really fascinating. I think that there are a lot of really poignant arguments found in here. And if you're interested, check it out on iTunes. It's available there now. So 
All right. I'm I'm in this boat with you. We haven't talked about it at length just because we tend to talk about movies and TV shows right. and sports. Right. But I'm I so but from just a little bit that I do know, I think we're in a fairly similar boat on this topic. That being said, so it sounds like a movie I'd love because I've been watching Chef's Table and Chef's Table on Netflix does a sort of very similar thing in many of its episodes accidentally because of how these chefs are going about the way they make food. Mm -hmm. Um, Pretty fascinating stuff. But how would this – how do you think this movie would sit with somebody who's not already down this road the way you and I are? For the middle America conservative evangelical who's still not even convinced – that this isn't just totally fake news. Yeah. How is this going? Do you think this would be an effective first thing for them to watch if you happen to have the chance? Or is this need to be inserted a little bit later as they're walking down this road? Yes and no. On the surface, here's, here's the problem with the movie in terms of bringing it to an evangelical audience. The movie inserts a, a lot of music, oddly enough, with this. And they have folk singers who sing, you know, some, some traditional spirituals. They, they, they do some of these things. And it can feel – I was sort of putting myself in a position of, of some conservative, older evangelicals that I know. And watching those musical segments through their eyes, I can sort of picture them rolling their eyes and saying, oh, this feels very froofy and hippie Mm. and all that kind of stuff. The arguments presented are really powerful. It talks again and again about the, the, the scriptures that use nature as an illustration for God and his power. It talks so much about the scriptures that point to our role as stewards of the environment. It talks about uh, even the Noah's Ark story and, and how not only were we saving a remnant of humanity, but we were saving a remnant of all of life. And I think that those elements, to me, they feel like they might have some weight for for. A certain audience. I think yeah. that it can be convincing if they can push aside some of those some of those other elements that the movie sort of dabbles in. Yeah, so maybe not your staunchest climate change Deni- deniers, right, exactly. but for those that maybe have had a, a fleck or two knocked off their armor in this regard, yeah. might might actually who at least have their guard down, right, and aren't just sitting here looking to be mad about it, might right. actually right. Get, well, we'll, we'll actually get something really positive. Well, and I, I think that, and I know I'm taking up your time for hey, most no, least it's important. All, it's all good. Thing, but it's it's one of those things where it's I don't know. It's the most important thing. <laughs> it's the most important thing. And, and I think that when you talk about the environment, it is one of those issues, as we were talking about earlier, that has become politicized, and I think unfairly so, because yeah. I don't know anybody, conservative, progressive, Republican, Democrat, who doesn't care about the environment in some ways. They right. might place it on a higher or lower tier, but we all appreciate the world in which we live, right? right? And so because of that, I think that it's important to to maybe bring these messages in a way and, and it can help maybe depoliticize them. Yeah. I you know no, I think that I think this is an issue that really, really needs better PR to kind of cleanse it of its political you know, politicalization right. that's happened to it over the years because it's really, it really ought not to be. A it really issue. ought not to be. So. Whether you're blue or red, you know, there's we a We should blue... all be green. Exactly. <laughs> uh, mine is, uh, is more on the least side of the most <laughs> least important, <laughs> but, but still important. And, and that is, um, 
the report that Kira Knightley, the actress that we all know and love from the Pirates of the Caribbean and other things, Star Wars back in the day, you know, uh, episode one, she was... Uh, no, she wasn't. Yeah. She was, you know, there was that whole thing about Queen Amidala and her yeah. lookalike. Kira yeah. Knightley was the lookalike for now. She was Portman. not the lookalike. So there you go. Yep. I, yep. I, yep. Okay. Yep. Look it up. Look it up while I tell you this. Anyways, but <laughs> Kira Knightley has said that she has now banned her three-year-old daughter from watching certain Disney films whose portrayal of women she disagrees with. Paul, and this is fascinating because some of the movies she's talking about are the very same ones my dad, my own dad, 20-plus years ago, didn't like us kids watching because of their portrayal of women. My dad was a better feminist. <laughs> I'm not. I, that's a weird way to say it. Uh, so I'm going to back off on that. But my dad was ahead of the curve on this one. That's way to go, Dad. pretty cool. You know, 20, 30 years ago, my dad was the one saying, hey, maybe these films don't have really positive portrayals of women. You know, every- And I've had lots of animated conversations with my wife who loves these Disney movies and has a different perspective. So maybe we actually ought to have a podcast with our wives on here. Oh, yeah. And talk about Disney princesses over the years. Would your wife be up for that? She would totally be Wendy, up for it. Yeah, you know what? Suzanne, we should, we should let's actually, do this. This would be a great episode. Yeah, I should bring my daughter along, too, because she loves and those old not, yeah, do, Disney movies. And, yeah, you know, those Disney princesses, they're an interesting thing to deal with, right? Yeah. I mean, I love those yeah, old how movies, much too. Do you, but, how much do you just say, oh, it was the time? And how much do you say, but this is still communicating the message to our young girls? Well, and here's the thing. Here's the thing that I wrestle with all the time. So I think it's great. There's nothing wrong with with strong, strong, able female heroines who rescue the prince. You know, I think that that's a great message to send. I love the messages that we're seeing in these modern Disney princess movies. I love them, love them, love them. But I don't know if there's something inherently wrong with girls wanting to have a handsome prince save them every once in a while. Is that inherently wrong, do you think? I think we gotta talk about it. I don't think I can answer it right here. <laughs> I'm not even gonna try. I'm not I'm not that crazy. My brain is crazy, but not that crazy. Not that crazy. It is crazy enough though to announce our next film for Hurt So Good. Oh Paul. Goodness. Your um, turn to pick, right? My turn to pick and uh, so mine's coming off of Netflix again. We did Netflix for Mortal Kombat. Good deal. But uh, this one's been on my back, on my backlog, on my queue for a while. I, so so long that it was even before it was on Netflix. I tracked down a copy of this film because I could not find it to purchase anywhere. It wasn't streaming on, for free. You couldn't find it to pay on Amazon Prime. You could not find copies to buy off of Amazon, like even used copies. Wow. It looked for all, for all. That you could see. It looked like it was trying to be purged (laughs) until I found a copy on eBay that a Goodwill in Indiana sold me for six bucks. Goodness gracious. This was a real quest. This might be the most relevant thing you've ever done in your life. But now it's actually been brought, strangely enough, just within the last couple of months to Netflix. And so that is... Battlefield Earth. Oh my goodness. We're going to watch Battlefield Earth. Wow. I'm excited for this one. John Travolta, right? John Travolta, Barry Pepper. This is notorious. Notorious. And this movie, you know, is based on an old sci fi book that weirdly is twisted up in the foundation of the theology of Scientology. Scientology. Yep. And so I am 
very excited for this one to see if it holds up to its super notorious reputation. So we're going to do Battlefield Earth, Paul. See, this is this is exactly what Hurts So Good is all about because I'm simultaneously dreading it and <laughs> super excited all at the same right? time. Right? Yeah. Uh, it's a good feeling. It's a good feeling. Also, just uh, so so keep up with that on Netflix. We'll talk about that in the next one. And just to, as a final zinger, yes, Keira Knightley was I in the Star Wars up. Episode 1. I curse you, Jake. I hate it when you're right. That <laughs> really ticks me off. Uh, and so come tell Paul how dumb he is for not knowing this. <laughs> on Twitter, he's at AC Paul. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Jake. And if you want to tag me in that so I can see you're your gloating, you, I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. But until next time, I'm Jake. I'm Paul. We'll catch you guys on the flip side. Bye.